Today's sermon text is 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 5 through 10. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, whom the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. The Huguenots are my heroes. The Huguenots are actually a, a French Protestant group that lived in the 16th and 17th century in France. They suffered great persecution under the hands of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, it was while we were overseas, Carol and I, kids were still young, we were about to come back after serving uh, the refugees over there that were coming out of the Eastern Bloc countries. Um, I was introduced to the Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's kind of a book, a collection of all the different saints that had suffered for the faith over the years. It was really a, a watershed moment for me to understand uh, or begin to understand what it really means to be faithful in endurance and to, to be strong in the face of persecution, to remain in faith. You know, we had dealt with all these refugees that were coming from oh, Iran, from Bulgaria, Albania, at the time Czechoslovakia, and all these people would come out who were Christians that had testified to remaining faithful in the midst of great pressure. And it was really amazing to me, how do you endure? You know, when the pressure comes on the church, how do we remain steadfast in faith with joy? Well, this is what we found last week in the church of these Thessalonians. You know, they... Paul says, he commends them, he boasts of them to all the other churches. No, they're steadfast in faith. They're remaining fixed and firm in faith. And he commends them. Well, today he tells us how they stood firm in faith. In other words, what was it about them that kept them standing firm in faith? And, and what we find here is that the answer is simply this, that they had a vision of, the, of that end day they had a vision of the final day. So Paul, kind of, if you will, the apostle, he pulls back the curtains and he says, this is what life's going to be like. This is what's going to happen on the last day. He's giving us a vision. He's giving us a glimpse of a future day which gives power for us to live in this day. It's an incredible vision. It's to give us hope, encouragement, steadfastness. So here's what I want to do. I want to look at this day, just four aspects of what it means when it talks about on that day or when the Lord appears. I want to look at four aspects of it, and then I want to look at some implications, what you need to do with it. So I'm going to back end the sermon with the application. Normally I weave it all kind of together and through and through, but, but I'm going to push it all to the end. I just want to explain the passage and then the implications for you. Uh, so, so this idea of what is this glorious day? What is this return of Christ because Paul is speaking about it and saying, this is why they were steadfast. They had a clear, a fixed vision on that day. Okay, so the first thing we learn about the return of Jesus, or this day coming, 
is that the return of Jesus will vindicate our suffering. It vindicates our suffering. Now, let me explain this to you. Look with me at verse 5. At verse 5, he says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you're suffering. And now, let me explain. Paul is not saying that if you suffer, it's going to make you worthy. Or if you really suffer, then you're deserving of going to heaven. He's not saying that. He's not saying, hey, you ought to go out and find some, really go suffer for Jesus, and then you can be assured of going to the kingdom. He's not saying that. He's simply saying this, that as you endure in suffering for the name, that you are presenting evidence that God has counted you. He's reckoned you. He considers you worthy of the kingdom which is coming in glory. In other words, remember in verses 3 and 4, if you're increasing in faith, you're increasing in love, you're remaining steadfast, that should be evidence to you and to everybody else that God's at work in them and that they are actually God's children. That if you persevere in faith, you continue to hold on to this belief that God is good, he sent a son to save, and you bear pressure and hardship because of it, if you are able to endure, then there's all this evidence being provided that yes, I am one of God's children. Now, you might say to me, well, that's kind of upside down. I mean, normally when we think about suffering, we're forsaken by God. We're being forlorn by God. He's passing over us. In other words, if God lets us go through the meat grinder, what's that say about God and his love for us? And Paul's saying, no, it's the opposite. It's the opposite. In other words, remember a few weeks ago we talked in 1 Peter about how fire, fire doesn't make gold more valuable at least not initially, what it does is it reveals the quality of gold. God uses suffering to reveal to us, to confirm to us and to others, they're mine. I mean, we saw that with Jesus, right? I mean, mean, Jesus only entered his glory once he went through the path of suffering. Suffering confirms, as we remain steadfast, enduring in hope, it confirms, no, they, God's saying, that is one of mine. That is a child of mine. It's providing evidence for us. So one author said that suffering is like God's school preparing us for heaven. Uh, So so as we enter suffering, I, I don't want you to think God's against me. No, no, the endurance in suffering is providing evidence of God's choice of us. It's otherworldly, I get it. But he says it's, it's evidence that God has rightly judged us as his own children. That's the first thing we see about the return of Jesus, that suffering is confirmation. Not suffering for doing wrong, not suffering for being foolish, but enduring and suffering, not just physical persecution, but just the endurance of this fallen world. But we remain, it's the cancer, it's the other issues that come into life. But I'm clinging to Christ, I'm clinging to Christ. It's the difficult marriage that you're continuing to endure, but I'm going to do it for the glory of Christ. It's the hardships that you face economically, but I'm still trusting in his goodness. All those things are providing evidence, confirmation. God looks at you as worthy, as worthy, because you're hanging on in the midst of difficulty. It doesn't make you worthy, it evidences it. Okay, the second thing we see about the return of Christ is that at the return of Christ, he will bring justice to the ungodly. Now look with me at verses 6 through 9. 
Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. How do we endure suffering by looking at this day? Well, we endure the sufferings and the trials and the hardships because we know that God will make all things right. God considers it just to bring about affliction to those who afflict. He, he will literally consider it just to bring trouble to those who bring trouble. He's going to bring about a divine justice. You, you see this inflicting vengeance. He's not, he's not vindictive. He's not having a temper tantrum. He's not having a fit of anger where he loses his cool. No, that word vengeance is a firm administration of divine justice upon it, 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 the punishment will fit the crime. It will be just. It will be fair. Now, sometimes we see that in life. Sometimes we see little glimpses, if you will, of divine justice. So a few years back, uh, there was a, a church in Baltimore City. They had finished taking their collection. A man came in to the back of the sanctuary, robbed them, took all their money. It had just been collected, took it all. I may have shared this with you a number of years back. but Took it all, ran down the stairs, got to the sidewalk, boom, died of a heart attack. They got all their money back. They got it all back. You know, sometimes you see divine justice, little snapshots of it in life. But by and large, the justice that we desire will be seen on that final day. When he appears, God will inflict, will afflict those who have afflicted. He will bring about a full judgment. And, and this judgment is upon those, not only who afflict, but you notice on those who don't know God, and on those who don't believe in the gospel. God will bring condemnation upon those who don't know God and those who don't obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Now, is this one or two groups? Well, some people think it's two groups, maybe atheists and hedonists. I don't think, I think it's one group, because I think they're related. Those who don't know God, I don't think he is referring to people who have no intellectual awareness of God, uh, they're just, they, their minds are a blank slate on God. I don't think he's speaking about that. I think he's speaking about those who don't know God as their father by faith. And the reason I say that is because what follows, they don't obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Now, that I know seems confusing to you because you're thinking obedience, you think of law, and gospel, you think of grace. So how can there be obedience to the gospel? I think what he's saying here, obedience to the gospel, is that you're receiving it, you're accepting it, you're embracing it. In other words, to be obedient to the gospel is to recognize I'm a sinner and I need to come to God through Christ by faith and repentance. So to submit to the gospel or to obey the gospel is to recognize I can only come through repentance of my sins and through faith in the Son who leads me to the Father. The two are joined together because you can't find the Father apart from the Son. And this is sprinkled throughout the Gospel of John. In John chapter 118, we read, No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, so that's Jesus, he has made him known. Greek word is he's exegeted God. 
Jesus has come to make the Father known to us as a father. But you see the same thing in John 5, 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So, so to ignore Jesus is to not know God. You see the same thing in John 14, 6. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, but through me, Jesus says. So you can't know God apart from the gospel that Jesus has come to bring. He says the same thing in John 17. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Do you see the connection there? So Carol and I met a new friend, and so we took him out to lunch last week, and we wanted to take him out to lunch to just share the gospel with him. We just wanted to know, did he know the gospel? And so he began telling me about a journey that he's making to God. And I was able to say, well, your journey will never find success if it doesn't meet Christ along the way. You will never get to the Father except through his Son whom he has sent. That's the only way. And that's why I think Paul says that they don't know God and they don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. The gospel is the means through which, by faith and repentance, we find God as our Father, forgiving and loving. So what Paul's saying is, this day will bring about a judgment, a condemnation of these unbelievers is who they are. They could be atheists, they could be hedonists, they could be religious people. Religious people who have just seen themselves as kind of earning their way through a myriad of good things to appeal to God. They won't find them, and they'll stand under this condemnation. And those who afflict, and notice the destruction. It's an eternal destruction. Uh, the word eternal is what it means. It is never-ending. There is no end. Now, that word destruction in Greek has a wide range of meanings. Uh, some think that it just means that God kind of blots you out. You're annihilated. You don't exist anymore. But it doesn't seem to run along with the rest of the verse because he seems to define this kind of destruction that these people will face by virtue of they'll be separated from him forever. Notice it says, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might that they will suffer. This is overwhelming when you think about it. Uh, to be separated, to be cut off, to never be able to reach God, all avenues of happiness terminated, uh, to see a risen, glorified Christ full of mercy and love and to never be in his presence, uh, you have to let this sink on you a little bit. James Denny was a New Testament theologian. He says, if there is any truth in Scripture at all, this is true, that those who stubbornly refuse to submit to the gospel and obey Jesus Christ incur at the last advent, or at the last coming, an infinite and irreparable loss. They pass into a night on which no morning dawns. This is, this is weighty. Uh, this is weighty. You have to ask God to open your eyes to the real weight of this thing. This is the destiny you know, so how do we endure suffering, those people who persecute us? This is what awaits them. We don't look forward to it with sort of 
a vindictive spirit. We just know that God will bring about justice to all those who have committed unrighteousness and injustices. This is what awaits. So for these Thessalonians who are suffering persecution, they knew God, God will deal with it. I don't need to deal with it. God will. But then the third thing we see about this return is that he brings relief to the godly. You saw there in verse 6, he brings relief to those who are being afflicted. For those of us who are suffering under the name of Christ, he brings relief. What is this relief he's talking about? Well, look with me at verse 10. At verse 10, he says, For when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, <clears throat> because our testimony to you was believed. So he's saying here, on that day when relief comes, this relief comes in the sense that he will be glorified in us and we will marvel over him. These saints. Now, what is a saint? You know, when I was raised, uh, saints always were old, dead men who were either monks or priests. They usually had some yellowish shoe behind their head and they were on these placards or icons or pictures of, of old saints. Does he mean that? Is that what he's speaking about, those few people? Because you notice Paul defines the word saint in the text. He says, those who have believed our testimony. These are the saints. What testimony? Well, the testimony of the apostles, the preaching of the gospel, that God has sent a son, a Messiah, and this Messiah has come to live among us for the purpose of bearing our sins and our shame and our guilt so that through faith we might be reconciled to God. They believe that. That means they're a saint. If you believe that, that means you're a saint. If you actually believe God has sent a son and through him alone can I be reconciled to God because he's going to be in my place bearing my sin under the judgment of God, then you're a saint. You may not be perfect. None of us are, uh, but we're being perfected and we will be made perfect on that final day. But this is the relief, that you're a saint in which you, he will come and be glorified in you. He'll be glorified. Now, what does that mean? Well, some people think it means like <clears throat> we reflect his glory, right? All, all of us, all the saints will reflect the glory of Christ. I think it's got to mean more than that, because he's glorified in the saints, there's got to be something more transformative than just reflective. So you, you think about, and John Stott makes this analogy, he says <clears throat> that a mirror can reflect, but the mirror is not changed by what it's reflecting. It's reflecting, but it's not changed by it. But if you think of a filament, a filament in an incandescent bulb, so move back from the LEDs, go back to the old incandescent bulb. There's wires inside a little bulb and the electricity comes in and, and they fire up with heat and light. And, and the wires are actually changing by the heat, putting off heat and light. I think that's what he means. That he will come and be glorified in his saints, that we will be changed by him. I liken it to standing next to a fire. When you stand next to a fire, yeah, you reflect the flames, but you also absorb the heat. You're changed by the heat. When he comes, he will change us to be like him. Even John Calvin said this. He says, Paul declares that our Lord in no sense reserves his glory to himself, but he possesses it only in order to radiate it to all the members of his body. We will be changed to be like him as he is. 
This is incredible. To have this day on the horizon, you're suffering now, I get it, that's a day that's coming. I mean, that will, that will cause endurance. That he will come and be glorified in the saints, but notice, to be marveled at. To be marveled. Have you thought about heaven in that way just for a moment? That you're going to, as one translation, you're just going to admire him. You're going to look at all he is. You're going to marvel over all that he's done to save you. You're going to marvel over the wounds in his body. You're going to marvel over the providential acts that he did to bring you to himself. You're going to marvel over all that he will bring you into. There'll be no end of marveling for us. We're not going to say like a movie that you've seen four times, yeah, I got it. You're not going to hit that point with him. You know, if you were to go out and, and stare at the sun, you can only look at the sun for a few moments, and depending upon the intensity of the sun and, and, and the dilation of your pupils, you can begin to do serious damage in just a few moments. You can't even, you look up it and you close your own eyes because of the burning sensation, and yet you'll marvel at him, actually the son of God, and you'll just enjoy him, admire him, be overwhelmed with him. This is a day that helps us to endure. Whatever comes against this church or against the faith, we will just keep reminding you, this is a day that we want to strive for. It will create endurance in us. So this return of Christ vindicates our suffering. It brings justice to those who are ungodly. It's going to bring relief to the godly. And then last, this day will be visible. It's going to be terrible. And it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be all those things. It's going to be a visible day. We will see him come back just as he went. The same Jesus who lived among us and, and died for us, was raised from the dead, ascended to the heavens, and, and, and disappeared from our sight as he ascended to heaven. So will he come back. And let me, let me remind you, he's going to come back in a very public, visible way. The first coming, no comparison. You didn't, very few knew it. Very little fanfare, very few recognized it. Everybody will recognize it. He's going to come back with angels in flaming fire. This is the point. There's no secret return of Jesus. It is bold and it is big. You know, we read just a couple months ago in chapter 4 of the first book to the Thessalonians that there's going to be a shout, there's going to be a trumpet of God blasted, the dead in Christ will be raised. We're going to be caught up in it, and then all come right back. There's no delay. There's no delay. Not only is there not a delay, uh, but he's coming back to bring retribution and relief on the same day. He doesn't come back to bring relief, snatch up the church, go kind of hang out for three and a half or seven years, and then come back again. He comes back and brings relief and retribution, and then we marvel and then the new heavens and the new earth. That's the way I would read this. I was raised in a different way. I understood his return differently as I was growing up, but they're happening at the same time. It's going to be terrible and beautiful. It's terrible for those who don't know God and who have not obeyed the gospel. It will be terrible. I, I want you to... The operative question when you read this text is, am I a saint? Am I one of his saints? Is this going to be a terrible day or a beautiful day? I, you know, I have to ask you this. I know where many of you stand, 
But, but in your heart, is this going to be a terrible day? See, see, the reality is that to make this a beautiful day, it requires repentance and faith. You know, Jesus said when he came and began his ministry, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Now, when I say repentance, I don't mean simply that we're sad over doing stupid things that might have hurt nice people. When I talk about repentance, there's something more, it's more of a cataclysmic change. It's, I'm thinking differently. I, I thought this was okay and this is okay. I lived my life for myself, but now I begin to say, no, God is holy, God is just. My life has been lived in absolute rebellion, maybe a benign rebellion. I'm not shaking the fist at God, but it's been a rebellion because I've lived with myself at the center of my universe rather than the one who's giving me breath, actually giving me breath right now. And we have to repent of our sins. We have to turn away from them, confess them to God. There is a place for contrition that I feel bad, but we turn away from sin and we turn to God. So repentance is, is an action of distancing yourself from your philosophies and patterns and behaviors and attitudes of life. But it has to be included with faith. When I talk about faith, I don't mean you're aware. I don't mean you, 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 know, you believe it's going to be a great day today. That's not what I'm talking about. With faith in the Bible, there is a trust involved. It's more than knowledge, it's trust. So here's the hard thing about faith that I think we miss in our kind of cheap grace world. Faith is difficult because it takes a radical admission that you have no ability to please God. Faith demands, demands that you admit, I absolutely am a sinner and I have nothing to bring to God. Now, most religious people won't agree with that. They think Jesus came, he died, God's in heaven. And, and if you ask them about their certainty of being with God, they'll say, sure. You ask them why, and what do they usually say? Been a pretty good person. We can always find people worse than us. And when you point out to them that they have an inability to please God by their own effort, many are offended. What are you saying? I, I'm a good person. I haven't done these things. So where is their trust? Their trust is in themselves and what they have or have not done. This is different. Our faith, our anchor is in Christ alone. This is what makes the day beautiful for us. And, and I would just ask you here, if you're uncertain, don't neglect the mercy of God. Don't neglect this day is a day of repentance and faith for you. To turn by faith and ask him to save you. And, and as you're asking God for salvation, look at Christ, who is the means by which you can come to God. So it's a terrible day for some. It's a beautiful day for others. This day will be, it will be a major contrast. Sheep and goats, separate. It'll be a beautiful day. A beautiful day. In a sense, it will marvel over him. will rejoice over his greatness. Can you imagine that day? When the burdens of this life, it's going to be like a, this instantaneous Burdens removed, joy produced. So when I was a kid, I was swimming in the ocean. I was young, probably seven or eight years old. And uh, I remember it was probably the first time I really got sucked under by the undertow. And, uh, and the undertow pulled me. And you know, the undertow, it's a terrible thing because if you panic and you start screaming, you're going to soak in a lot of water. And depending on how far from the beach you are, uh, many people have died from the undertow. And I remember screaming 
because all of a sudden I felt like I was getting sucked down. I thought I was, this sheer panic came on me, and I just started screaming. And it was like, out of nowhere, this arm grabs my arm and pulls me out. And it was my father. Just, he saw it, grabbed me, and pulled me out. And, and what happened was this amazing dread was replaced with amazing joy. It, it was like, boom. All of a sudden, what was so frightful, now I'm so thankful. I think it's going to be a beautiful day. All of a sudden, all that is wicked and bad, even in, it's all taken away. Boom. All of a sudden, it's beautiful. So this is the return of Christ. It's incredible. It's going to validate our suffering. It's going to vindicate us and vindicate our suffering. It's going to, um, going to bring justice to the ungodly. It's going to bring relief, justice to the ungodly, relief to the godly, and it's going to bring beauty for those in Christ. So what do you do with this? What are the implications for you? So hang with me here. I want to give you five things that I want you to consider if this is all true. Five things I want you to consider. First, this glorious day of which we sang about, we're talking about, it should strengthen you in the midst of trials. It's kind of the theme of the whole sermon, right? How do we endure trials? You got to get a vision of this glorious day. It's going to strengthen us in trials. So your vindication, your deliverance, your glorification, that's going to enable you to endure the injustices and evils of this day. Let me remind you, the injustices that you see taking place around you, the evils, they will not have the final say, they will not have the final determiner as to what happens. It's not going to be that way. This final day gives us the ability to live in a world full of injustices. Listen, the Christian has no problem saying life is unfair. It is unfair. It is unfair. Many people die in the midst of great unfairness. What I'm saying to you is that he will make it fair. And you don't need to use might to make it right. He will do it for you. He says it clear in Romans 12. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. We rest in him. And many of us look at many of the injustices taking place right now. It may be for you political. It may be economic. It may be social. Say so there are great injustices taking place. And within you wells up this desire to make it right. So I drive out of my home every day and I drive by a neighbor's sign. And he says, stop the steal. This family or gentleman feels that the election has been stolen. We've got to make it right. And all of a sudden you feel this tension welling up in you. Let me remind you, the election wasn't stolen from God. It wasn't stolen from God. It, listen, all elections have a degree of dirtiness and irregularities. I have no doubt about that, and it may be true in this one as well. There will not be a person that God has not chosen to be in that chair. At the end of the day, it wasn't stolen from him. You know, we're used to this triumphalistic approach as Christians. We're not used to living in the minority. Church always has, and it's thrived in it, and it's, it's done well in it. Not easy, but it's, its place is usually in a place of minority, not majority. So, so we can endure injustices. He will make it right. Flaming angels coming back. You can rest assured. He will do it. 
in a way far better and far balanced than we could ever do it. Secondly, this glorious day is to rightly align your fears. You know, we're in great uncertainty, times that are uncertain, and many of us are fearing. In 30-plus years of ministry, I've never seen Christians more fearful. I mean, the injustices the, the, on the political scene with the pandemic, you know, we are fearing all kinds of issues as well as fearing controversies. And I know controversies have always existed, JFK, the Twin Towers. We have controversies around vaccines and what's coming. Many of us are taking 10 steps down the road as to what might come, what might happen, and all these controversies brewing. Here's what troubles me. It's stealing your joy, it's stealing your peace, and it's stealing your faith. And it does nothing to bring justice to the troubled. It doesn't bring help to the weak. And it doesn't bring hope to those who are struggling to believe. The church has always existed in perilous times, and they exist by loving God and loving neighbor, by us being good citizens, doing what we can, but loving our spouses, instructing our children, being faithful at work, being sacrificial to our neighbors, praying for our enemies. This is how the church survives. This is how we will survive. This glorious day is no conspiracy. Let me tell you, it's no conspiracy. So here's what I want us to do. I want to shift our fears. So I want us to be like the disciples on the boat going across the Sea of Galilee. Here they are, fishermen trained. They understand the water. They're sailing. A squall comes up. A squall is like a sudden storm, but it's very violent. And these men are trained, and yet they feel there's an existential threat. What I mean is there's a threat to their existence. They think they're going to die. They have a, they're well-versed on the threats of the water. And they start screaming out. They're terrified. Their lives are on the precipice. They have what they would say is a legitimate fear. But there's one in the boat who's sleeping. He doesn't seem to have the same fear they have. So they wake him up. And he stands up. Peace, be still. Boom. No waves, no wind, nothing. And then here's what the text says. Then they feared with an exceedingly great fear. It's like the gospel piles up, just descriptive word after they feared. Now, they didn't fear a lot. They didn't fear a ton. They feared an exceedingly great fear. In other words, now we got a problem. Now, now we have something to really fear about. That's what I want us to do. I want us to fear Christ and his glory, a reverent fear. I don't want us to fear the world. Jesus says, don't fear the one who can kill the body. You fear the one who can kill the body and the soul. That's where you need to. This glorious day will cause these days to pale in comparison if you're worried about fear. And then third, I want you to see this glorious day reminds you of the unique value of the church. You know, the church is a group of people, saints, sinners, who have been redeemed by faith, were called together to worship God. The church is a reflection of the kingdom of God. That is a local church. I don't mean the universal church. I don't think it's spoken of very, you know, very briefly, as I mentioned last week in Scripture. The local churches are little expressions of the kingdom of God. That's why we're called the embassy of heaven or the colony of the kingdom. The church is to be. In fact, Jesus said to the church, here are the keys to the kingdom. The church has been given the keys. The church has been given the authority on behalf of heaven to declare who is in and who's out. The church 
is the gathering place to remind the world of this glorious day that's coming. The way we love one another, the way we serve one another. The unity that we forge with each other around the gospel, not other temporal commonalities. The unique value of the church in these days. I, I will promise you that if struggles and persecution and greater marginalization comes on, this place will grow in value. Go read Living, Living Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a, a man who experienced that firsthand when the Nazis began to squash the evangelical church. It, it's, it's a fellowship that we have that we don't want to fail to appreciate. Then two more. One is that, that this glorious day emboldens gospel witness. Let me tell you, I think we're coming into times that are going to be great to declare the glory of Christ. If he's coming to bring relief and retribution, let us be on the front declaring these things. Let us be offering transcendent hope to a people who are watching their temporal hopes evaporate and be demolished. You know, it was back in 1989, I went to the University of Chicago on their campus. We were doing mission training, and we were sharing the gospel with students. And so I met this, this wonderful, nice gentleman from Asia. And I, I sat down with him, and I said, do you know anything about the Christian faith? And, and he said, no. And so I began to explain the gospel to him. And after I explained the After I explained the gospel, he just looked at me, and he said, such a beautiful message. Why has no one shared this with me? I didn't know the man before. I never saw him again. Why hasn't anyone shared this with me? I had no answer for him. We want to share this with an urgency, not an anxiety. God saves, but God chooses to use us to declare this message. So if you're nervous about this, then grab a friend and invite Develop relationships. Speak to your neighbors. I'm telling you, seasons are changing. The people are going to want to hear about this transcendent hope. And then the last thing I would say to you is this glorious day means that life, excuse me, this glorious day means that death is not the end. Death is not the end. There is no end to life. There is eternal destruction and there is eternal relief. There is no end. People that think, well, we're just going to cast off in the sunset. There is no eternal sunset. Life will continue. Love what one author said. He says, the end of the story in the Bible is the beginning of a never-ending, ever-increasing happiness in the hearts of the redeemed as God displays more and more of his infinite and inexhaustible greatness and glory for the enjoyment of his people. That's what we have. Now, of course, I have to go to my pastor, Charles Spurgeon, who had a word on this. He says, we will all admire what God has done in others and in us. Those who look upon the saints will feel a sudden wonderment of sacred delight. They will be startled with surprise and glory over the Lord's work in them. We thought he would do great things, but this, this surpasses conception. Every saint will be a wonder to himself. I, I thought my bliss would be great, but not like this. All his brethren will be a wonder to the perfected believer. He will say, I thought the saints would be perfect, but I never imagined such a transfiguration of excessive glory would be put upon each of them. I could not have imagined my Lord to be so good and gracious to me. That's what will be. Death is not the end. Bonhoeffer said it's the beginning of life for us. 
So how do we endure suffering? By fixing our eyes, focusing on this day. It will not make you super spiritual Christians. It will make you very practical ones. And it will involve you to sacrifice your life today because you have the hope of tomorrow. That's why these saints in Hebrews 10, it says they joyfully accepted the confiscation of their goods because they knew they had better and lasting possessions. Can you imagine someone taking all your furniture out of your house and you're happy? They're taking it all from you. You're not screaming injustice. You're not screaming, I got rights. You're just happy because you know you got better and lasting possessions. That's an enduring faith, and that's what I pray for us. So let's just take a moment and ask God for this kind of love for that day that we might have enduring faith.